0: Deconstruction, a podcast from Phi Philosophy and the History of Ideas Research Team at Deakin University, Australia. Welcome to Deconstruction. I'm Associate Professor Patrick Stokes. Philosophy has a bad reputation for being stuck in the ivory tower. But just how can you take philosophy down into the marketplace? And what will you find when you get there? On this episode, Dr. Valery Vinogradovs shares his experience with public philosophy. So it's Patrick Stokes here. We're chatting today with uh, Valery Vinogradovs, uh, and we're talking about the idea of public philosophy, I guess, uh, and the broader issue of philosophy as a way of life and how we bring that into the public sphere. Now, can you tell us a bit, um, Valery, about your background in this stuff and and, um, the trajectory you've taken, because it sounds like you've gone from a fairly straightforwardly academic position to something a bit more broad.
1: Yeah, I, 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 thank you Patrick. I, would, I wouldn't call it broad, I, I think it's just more um, um, individual or, or creative. So. Uh, you know, I had no idea what I was doing as an undergraduate student, uh, I, I, I did pretty well, I think I have a bit of a talent uh, in philosophy and I ended up doing a PhD because my honor supervisor told me that if uh, you know, I need to go further and if I do my master's degree I will only waste two years of my life. So I found, I found, I found that uh, statement to be rather compelling, so I came here to Melbourne. Uh, and th- thanks to Richard Hamilton, who was my honor supervisor, and uh, I did um, PhD at La Trobe University. But I was, I was never satisfied just with kind of embarking on uh, you know, a large scholarly project. Uh, I was always really, really interested in teaching um, but because you know, I was only evolving as a thinker and I was just picking up the things as I was going uh, in terms of what I can do, what I can't do, what philosophers around me are uh, into, it really took me a while to develop uh, like a personal understanding of what, it, what is it that I can do um, as a philosopher. But when you do your... <clears throat> postgraduate studies and particularly when you have a young child growing simultaneously there isn't much room for for thought self-reflection and kind of uh, an understanding of the wider scheme of things so it's only when I finished uh, PhD uh, you know six months after uh, you know as soon as I kind of shook off the trauma of spending 10 years doing philosophy at the academic level, that a kind of a new, new, new persona uh, st- started to emerge and evolve. And essentially what I did, I just capitalized on uh, all the beautiful intellectual experiences on all the disciplining uh, of the mind uh, that is a necess- necessary part of uh, doing a PhD, uh, just to explore myself and truly things that uh, I am interested in. And, as a result of that, uh I think I have a number of really interesting uh projects and setting aside my engagement with you know Deakin University, for which I'm very very grateful uh there are a number of things that I have explored, and they have opened up uh endless possibilities in the future as well
0: Cool. so tell us about some of these projects what are some of these yeah
1: projects? so uh, some of the things that I wanted to say, uh, you know, what is really important is that uh, you know the, the training that we get as uh, philosophers at the tertiary level. Uh, is incredible and it's certainly uh, worth the shot only because, only by means of, you know, a systematic engagement with difficult ideas, trying to understand, trying to interpret, trying to imagine things of your own that you kind of realize what uh, our minds and what we are capable uh, of. So that was like a necessary condition for, uh, you know, an uh, emerging philosophical uh, persona, uh, uh, so to speak and uh, you know philosophers do two things essentially I, I believe and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm more an adherent to kind of a classical definition in that you know f- f- philosophers they are teachers of wisdom essentially and uh, you, you can teach the wisdom by uh, writing books uh, writing articles writing you know literary critical uh, uh, cultural criticism uh, and you teach so you um, uh, Philosopher is a teacher of uh, of wisdom, and um, in this way, you know, there are many parallels between what I do outside of uh, the academy and what academic philosophers do. In that, you know, I teach and I write uh, as well, but just the the nature of my teaching, uh, the subjects that I focus on and some of my non-scholarly writing uh, is different because I just pursue different uh, traject- trajectories. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can speak both of teaching and writing depending on uh, where do you want me to begin with. Sure,
0: well just before we do, I- I'm interested to just to tease out a little bit the, the idea that um, you know academic philosophy is an excellent preparation for doing some of this stuff. But um, there's an interesting debate that goes on about different forms of higher degree training um and i I wonder whether you think that the the sort of australian system which is more like the british system where it's basically we just throw you into a big writing project for three to six years um whether that's a, a better way to be training um training philosophers or whether something more like the american system where you're doing a huge amount of uh, classwork and, and actual like, you know, coursework, and it's only towards the end you actually write up your thesis. I, want, I wonder...
1: Well, I mean, uh, I, I think th- this journey is certainly up for an interpretation, and, and there are so many things that you can cultivate uh, as a result of doing postgraduate uh, studies. I certainly often opinion that it must be a, a complex project. Uh, e, that's why when I started PhD, I immediately immersed myself into all sorts of teaching activities, even though it's not a necessary part of doing uh, a PhD. But you know, having had the experiences of last years, so I would I would certainly incorporate some, as, as as it's called, you know, field expertise as well. Uh, and by field expertise, I mean, uh, I mean uh, community uh, philosophy. Unfortunately, uh, at the moment uh, in Australia, it's not a really big or celebrated or traditional thing to have uh, you know, community or public uh, philosophy events. But if, if it was the case, I can certainly see multiple uh, benefits of uh, participating as, uh, in those as a postgraduate student Because you just meet a diversity of people that you wouldn't meet otherwise in a tertiary environment. Sure. And this is very good for judgment, essentially. Yeah, okay.
0: yeah. Do you think that's changing at all, or are we still pretty much where we were 15 th- years ago? I think
1: we're ready. Mm-hmm. This is what has changed. What has changed is the readiness. I think there is a lot of uh, hunger for philosophical uh, thinking in the society, simply because you can't be satisfied with uh, you know the... Uh, information we get from mass media, uh, however reputable uh, it is, philosophy uh, is, uh, you know, an individual pursuit of, of, of truth or not rather than post truth, and it it it, it, it requires uh, a dialogue with with people like 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 what what we do now, mm. and uh, you know, philosophy is kind of the cornerstone cornerstone of this approach.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's um, it's been very haphazard in Australia. I mean, there's, there are some things... I mean, I'm full disclosure, I'm, I'm the co-convener of the media committee for the Australian Association of Philosophy, and we are working on trying to get more philosophical commentary into the media and, and try and make philosophy more visible that way. But as you say, there's also stuff on the community level that's, that's important. My, my sense is that philosophers are doing a bit more of that than they used to be, but... I in think in some are. ways there aren't necessarily the institutional um, rewards for doing that that you might get for other sorts mm. of tr- more traditional scholarly activities?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think it has anything to do with uh, uh, kind of tangible rewards as such. I think it's about things we value and uh, if, uh, for example, I believe uh, in the idea that everyone needs to do philosophy, uh, it's good for the mind, it's good for the heart, it's good, it's good for the bonding between people, it's good for creating productive conflicts between people. Uh, so what I mean by that is, for example, um, at, when I teach at the tertiary level, you know, say uh, an 11-week course with Matt Sharp on uh, happiness and good life, I am exposed, and or these students are exposed to me only for 11 weeks. So I see them once a week for two hours and by the end of the course, uh, I know their names and roughly I know where they come from. When they do, when you do philosophy at the community level, you end up knowing people for years. Um, people start opening up and people are much more prepared for sharing their thoughts and they are vul- vulnerable uh, in a kind of comfortable way. They're happy to, happy to open up, they're happy to, exercise judgment. They're open to experimenting with imaginative activities. These are some of the things that are simply impossible uh, to, uh, to accomplish because of a certain ways educational activities are structured. You know, Ten weeks is just not enough to prepare for that. Sure.
0: Yep, yeah, okay. it's we'll, right. We'll, yeah. we'll cut that out. Yeah, yeah it's like. <laughs> okay. So tell us about um, some of those community activities. I mean, the sort of activities you're talking about that, you know, some of us give public talks and things like that, but you're talking about stuff that involves long-term engagement with the same people over a very long period of time. What sort of activities yeah. are we talking about?
1: So um, I, I have two things, two activities, two projects um, in my mind. Uh, I've been running free uh, uh, philosophy seminars. In Fitzroy, for who, whoever is uh, interested, and we just meet on a fortnightly basis. And normally, I just design like an eight, ten-week course, and uh, you know, we have discussions on all sorts of topics. What is really remarkable about it is that uh, people stay; mm-hmm. you know, they they, they keep coming. Uh, they bring new friends, people who are interested. They're happy to share you know, the fascination with the new experiences, and and, and this is why I said at the very beginning that there is readiness for it, people want it. What is really missing is um, popularity, I guess, Mm that these these activities are not at the cultural foreground at the moment, but it's just a matter of uh, collective effort, uh, I guess. Um, These activities are not particularly experimental so it's just pretty much uh, a group of people and uh, sometimes I have invited speakers um, and it's more like a tutorial where you discuss all kinds of ideas and my role out there is just to guide or facilitate discussion. But it's a real discussion, this is what I want to emphasize. It's not that you are trying to kind of draw ideas out of students. No, students are already ready You present material and they are excited. Their minds are animated and they're ready to engage. So why
0: don't I ask, how, how has the attention you pay to pedagogy as, as, um, as you said, as an art form, um, which is something that academics, I think, probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about, unfortunately. We are sometimes told that we are dual professionals that we're simultaneously both teachers and researchers and these are two different professions and we have to do both of them uh well we don't spend a lot of time thinking about it how has that informed not just your public philosophy work but also your scholarly work how has that fed yeah. back into your your writing both scholarly
1: and non-scholarly yeah excellent um uh, uh, as far as my scholarly writing goes it just affects the um uh, some of the themes I am concerned with. So well, one of my writing uh, projects is, for example, an uh, reinterpretation of the uh, Enlightenment idea of a pedagogue, of an uh, ultimate teacher. So this, uh, so it just concern. It just has to do with me trying to understand what it would be. Uh, what would be the ideal of a teacher, for example, under the Enlightenment standards of Immanuel Kant, uh, Mm -hmm. for example. But at the same time, it always has a kind of a practical implication for me. The only reason why I want to explore that, so that I can synthesize these insights with my actual life, with my actual pedagogical activities and what is more not only with that also with uh, the way i engage with people with the ways i engage with my son i mean i'm not only uh, you know a father of my son i'm also his primary teacher uh, so it you know really seriously reflects on on the way i uh, engage with people uh, around me and uh, you know all these philosophical doctrines are really essential for um my self-understanding in this regard. As far as non-scholarly work is concerned, this is where things become a little bit more interesting. And it is because um, if we talk about pedagogy as art, there is no art without experimentation. There is no art without an individual attempt to break free and break away from the established norms. So with writing, um, uh, there are a number of uh, uh, projects that have already been submitted and I'm working on. And um, one point also I wanted to emphasize to kind of prepare you for what I'm going to read uh, is that having finished or having studied philosophy at the tertiary level, the main thing is that, at least for me, is that you actually become interested in all sorts of topics so instead of you know there's this idea that you know you do phd and then you focus on a particular subfield or a subfield within subfield uh uh, i wholeheartedly oppose this attitude and uh because i think you know we this way you create a cyclopes rather than uh, a philosopher i think we prepare ourselves just to be you know, intimately interested in all kinds of topics. And therefore, things I write on, uh, they're so diverse in terms of, uh, you know, area of or field of interest or, uh, I don't know, a subfield, doesn't matter. And when I write them, uh, I write them in a non-scholarly way. It's always uh, experimental. And it's always provocative. So at the back of my mind, I always have the reader. You know, the, what what the reader, what would be readers' assumptions about the topic that I'm presenting? And because I've had had a lot of uh, teaching experiences, I roughly know what would be the kind of public opinion on mm-hmm. the topic uh, of uh, that I'm concerned with. Uh, and I try to challenge it from multiple perspectives. So. To you know, to to, to use like a, a, a philosophical reference, I'm much more of a Nietzschean rather than Kantian in this regard. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to provide a number of perspectives and let the reader decide uh, what is happening. So what I would like to do now, if it's a, if it's okay with yeah. you, Pet, you know, the, the, uh, there are two pieces that I've been really uh, uh, inspired by in, in last month. So normally, what happens? an idea comes to my mind, or, or something happens, uh, Some there is a, some sort of cultural event, and normally it just pisses me off. You know, Normally I just feel a, some sort of uh, sentiment uh, of frustration or I feel anger or indignation, and I use writing and then teaching. I often incorporate my uh, writing ideas in my teaching classes just to figure out why, why, why do I have this mm-hmm. uh, sentiment. And there were two uh, kind of uh, Topics that I've been uh, baffled by or inspired by in the last uh, month. One was the idea that at some point I just I'm, I'm, one of my concerns is taste in general and and role of taste in society. So I'm very much concerned with aesthetic education, and my mm-hmm. PhD was on aesthetic education. And taste is not only about clothing. Obviously, there's I think. For, for example, my pedagogical projects, of which I, I, I am to speak, they try to develop taste in education, all right? So what is it to have a tasteful educational activity? Mm-hmm. So, and this kind of uh, reflects on, on, on my writing as well, and uh, a month ago I was just thinking, goodness my, why, why you know, I, I like to dress well, and, but I'm thinking, and I really like the functionality and pragmatics of wearing skirts. In general, I think skirts are beautiful. Uh, you know, I dated a woman who had a beautiful, uh, who you know, who was in the habit of wearing beautiful skirts. But for some reason, um, I feel even I, the thought of wearing a skirt on Burwood Campus make me feel shame or mm. make me feel very uncomfortable. And I was thinking, but clearly, just the norm. You know, there are societies, there are traditions when men wear, wear skirts. Mm. and I, man, I had a
0: student turn up to class this week wearing a, a kilt, actually. Oh,
1: there you, was, go, yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. But, you know, th- there are military men, pious men, all kinds of men, uh, you know, Japanese, Scottish, Samoan, and, and, mm-hmm. and they wear skirts. Living here in Australia, in Melbourne, if if you're wearing a skirt uh most likely uh you will be judged in terms of gender politics Mm -hmm. rather than in terms of personal style Mm. Uh, and for me it's it's a serious cultural concern and there was a a piece that i finished and submitted recently we'll see whether it gets published i don't really care to be honest because i've got a piece ready uh, and uh, i'm have clarity about what i think about the topic and I uh, incorporate these ideas in my teaching classes. If, if it gets published, cool. If it, if it doesn't get published, I will share my thoughts with people who listen to this podcast or my students in classes. Mm-hmm. And here is just a little, one, one paragraph uh, from this piece just to get, get uh, give you an uh, idea of uh, what you can do as a philosopher without doing scholarly philosophy, uh, essentially. So here it is. Um, Whether in Bondi, Fitzroy or Bernie, it is safe to generalize that our folk would most probably find a man wearing a skirt as unusual and captivating as a woman wearing a mustache. So much so that a man wearing a skirt changes its nature as much as a woman changes the nature of a mustache. Because the marvelous change is the work of an awakened imagination, such a dress and mustache mustache draw a hell lot of attention. The more this piece of cultural anomaly fits the person, uh, the more it captivates and the less it makes sense for a moment, a moment of wonder, an urban aesthetic moment. Uh, So there is that. Mm. Uh, so what I'm trying to just to uh, say is that, you know, there are aesthetic moments uh, in life that we may experience on a regular basis, but we call don't really call them aesthetic moments because, you know, it's a rather uh, marginalized uh, discipline and field of engagement uh, with life. And what I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to kind of bring it to the fore that, you know, these topics are uh, really important and in general philosophy of taste or style, has a lot to offer. Uh, but in terms of style, we can see it's very experimental. We can't submit this to a review of metaphysics metaphysi- no, or no, something. Yeah yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and the second piece is uh, kind of channels my, 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 my uh, true anger with, um, uh, you know, that I'm exploring public conscience out there. So as we know, in the last two weeks, it uh, have been uh, you know, in the spotlight uh, of uh, media, the case of Cardinal George Bell um, molesting kids. At the same time, no one took notice of the fact that simultaneously uh, in Geelong uh, we were hosting an air show. And this mm. air show was an exhibition of cutting-edge military weapons that are on sale. And it was sold as uh, a, a family event, mm. as a as a spectacle. Um, as far as I understand, this year, uh, the spectacle welcomed up to 250,000 people, and no one, for some reason, uh, you know, the you know public conscience was attuned to the fact that we can't, uh, you know, sexually assault kids. But for some reason, weapons that are uh, yet to kill people around the world are a matter of spectacle, an aesthetic mm. spectacle. Uh, and, and the reason for that, obviously, is because our imagination doesn't go as far as the future victims of, of, these, mm-hmm. uh, of these weapons. And the main reason for that in Australia is because we're not subjected to street violence or, um, or you know, street gangs, you know, rivalry between them on streets. You know, we, we don't really see it, it's a very peaceful society. And in many ways, you know, th- there's obviously an issue with it. So I was trying to channel my frustration with that and um, hear, hear what it is. So I'm, I don't really talk about Cardinal Pell here, I just talk about a hypothetical scenario to arouse the uh, reader's imagination. So this is how my, ped- mm-hmm. you know, my uh, pedagogical uh, principles play out in this context. It's a little bit longer, but I think it's worth it. Uh, and there's a play with words Uh, you know i use the character adam uh like first man Uh, but i shorten this man as australians like to shorten names to ad and in russian and my uh, uh, native language is russian ad is hell okay so the first man is adam and ad shortened is hell so there's an interesting kind of (laughs) theological you know theological debate debate out there so that's how it goes Ed never cried like this before. He experienced death of his grandparents and his mom, overcome poor self-esteem through sport, fighting, sex, and success. He even recently cried when his son was born. Ed was disarmingly pained because he just lost what he thought to be a good life. Adam was born in a civilized family in a moderately affluent functional and fortunate society where systematic street violence and war had become abstract academic concepts. A likable and diligent fellow, not only Adam's private life, but also his career went really well as he was an incestuous presenter and sales gun. He was one of those people who would make a spouse happy and who could sell you anything. Sadly, Ed has nothing of his own to sell, nothing of his own to love. Adam invested all of his family's savings into a new fantastic home in Boronia. The breed box that out of everything in the universe evokes an ASCII suddenly and immediately disappeared. Yes, taking every soul with it into the cutting clouds of a volcanic gray explosion. Adam's life is spinning away before the eyes of an emerging Ed, Neither his mind, heart, or body know what to do except for one thing. So, what I'm trying to do here is that you know, if if you wonder at uh, you know a beautiful American-made uh, uh, you know helicopter that carries uh, missiles, mm. uh, maybe you should consider where these missiles go. Maybe they will one mm. day go into your house in Baronia. Should that be a consideration? I think so. Yeah,
0: it's interesting, actually. Um with the air show. I'd forgotten it was on or I didn't realise it was on and I was at Deakin downtown, at Deakin's uh, city property, um, for a meeting and looked out the window and there there were two planes flying along right right over the middle of the Melbourne CBD, one of which I think actually was something like a C-130 or something but it looked kind of like a civilian plane and it was being trailed by what was clearly an F-18 Hornet and I thought Oh, that doesn't look good. But everyone was kind of calm, and I thought, okay, well, at least this means that something of the sort of post nine eleven paranoia might have lifted a bit. But yeah, it was kind of like these are these machines that are designed yeah. to kill people. Yeah, yeah. Just calmly flying over the city, and everyone's like, oh, that's cool. It's, yeah. yeah, it's it's an odd. Yeah. An but it's
1: it's an object of wonder. Mm. It's it's you know it, it it's paradoxical because because it's an object of peaceful military wonder, and it's just, it, it just strange. Mm. We are so accustomed, you know, the most hazardous or the most uh, disturbing noise we can hear from the clouds is you know, spraying thunderstorms, but it's not too difficult to imagine you know, these you know, flying weapons mm. actually functioning and doing what they're made for. Mm. up in the sky That's above true. the melbourne and i mean
0: at least in in that case you're talking about weapons that haven't actually um been used in anger yet yeah. so to speak yeah um but i remember years ago um being at uh, edinburgh castle and looking at there's an enormous siege cannon called mons meg that they have on display there mm. and you meant to sort of go oh wow look how big that cannon is isn't it interesting and i remember looking at it thinking how many people is this killed um, hundreds of years ago, people obviously will never know anything of, will never know anything of who they were or, or how they lived. But you know, I remember looking at it, thinking it's it's very odd that we're being invited to, mm. you know, have this wow look at that sort of reaction to mm. something that was designed explicitly to kill and that mm. has done so. Mm. Unlike, say, an Australian FA team, which maybe will never see action or, or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting question. Um, just before we go, can I ask you to tell us a little bit about the Crossing Avenues um, sure. project? Because there's some really interesting talks coming up that people
1: may want to get along to. As well. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Pat. So um, uh, this this pedagogical and f- philosophical uh, project just, you know, as, uh, as one may put it, uh, crystallizes some of my um, um, or mo- all of my uh, di- uh, dissatisfactions with... Uh, teaching habits that I have observed uh, as an undergraduate, postgraduate uh, student and in general as a teacher. I think um, there are some well-established pedagogical conventions that uh, can be challenged or experimented uh, with in terms of format, the kind of speakers you invite. Uh, and the kind of audience as well you expect to uh, to get for your workshops so it 's very difficult to uh, to get uh, you know uh, people who have to work five days a week into your university uh, mm-hmm. talk on a wen- on Wednesday at four p m it 's almost impossible so there are many things that are uh, you know that I consider out there. So workshops take place on Saturday where people have day off for those people who instead of going to um, I don't know, Federation Square and eating uh, and celebrating Polish culture by uh, eating pancakes or something, who want to celebrate culture in a slightly different way and, and challenge themselves. That's one of the ideas out there. That I think we spend uh, our leisure time not in most productive uh, ways. And um, But I think educational activities need to be entertaining as well so that people are uh, interested in, in them. It is what I'm trying to do. So I'm, uh, uh, I think that everyone uh, can be a philosopher, and there are many philosophers in Melbourne that are not categorized as such because by default, philosophers are associated with academic philosophers, uh, which I think is an uh, erroneous judgment. you know academic philosopher is a type of philosopher. Um, there are many fascinating people uh, out there in Melbourne who uh, are uh, deeply educated. Uh, experienced and interesting people who have uh, passion for sharing their understanding of life with others and these are the people uh, that I'm after so uh, as with my writing you know there is a a certain topic that uh, I want to tackle I want to deal with and uh, I invite all sorts of people, uh, and I kind of try to match them up in interesting ways, Uh, so uh, they present various perspectives on a particular theme, so uh, next workshop taking place in two weeks uh, is on ethics and sexuality, and uh, speakers uh, that I have for for this workshop, you know, they're, they're, they're all very, very, very different people, but they are willing to collaborate So collaborate as teachers, they're willing to meet prior to the event, Mm. maybe even a few times, to discuss what we can talk about so we can create a coherent and thoughtful collaborative pedagogical uh, object. And these people are just to kind of show you the diversity of people that uh, I'm interested in. One of them uh, runs um, Melbourne Center for Feminist Philosophy, her name is Emma McNichol. she's animated, spirited, and very interesting young woman. Um, she will be interestingly matched up with Sister Zai Zanda, who is also feminist but she you know, is, is of African descent, and she's a storyteller rather than academic philosopher. Um, and the second part of the seminar will be, uh, of the workshop will be a joint seminar between a Catholic minister and uh, associate professor at the University of Divinity John debo and uh, uh, you know a libertine so to speak mm-hmm. uh, Roger Butler who has you know five partners and hes a true educator you know he may be even like a preacher you know, he runs workshops on sexual freedom what is really important for our discussion now is that uh, these people want to work together. These people want to create something meaningful together. These people are truly philosophers because they are interested in clarity, pursuit of truth through uh, uh, collaboration. And I think this is one of the ways uh, for, uh, for us to um, arouse genuine interest in uh, philosophy as an essential part of meaningful life.
0: It sounds like um, really fantastic events and something that I think academic philosophers would learn a great deal from. Thank you very much indeed for um, talking to us today. I appreciate it. My great pleasure. Thanks, Beth. Thank you. you. Deconstruction is produced by FI, Philosophy and the History of Ideas Research Team at Deakin University, Australia. For more information, visit blogs.deacon.edu.au
1: slash philosophy.